get into God's word. Oh, good. I love it. I love the fact that you love the Bible. And uh, that's what we're about here. Uh, we want to dive into God's word this morning. So we started a new series last week uh, that we're calling a framework for life. And uh, one of the things that we're just kind of exploring through this series of talks over the next few weeks is how do you and I live as followers of Jesus in this current cultural moment. And once again, that can be a real challenge. That can be some, uh, some, a real difficulty, uh, as we discovered last week, because we're in the midst of a battle, right? And, and once again, what we discovered was that it's actually a spiritual battle. And if you remember, we talked about the kingdom of God, and then we talked about the kingdom of self, which are taken right off the pages of the Bible. Another way of saying that, that the Bible talks about it, is that there's the kingdom of God, but there's also the kingdom of this world, and if you remember last week, we unpacked that a little bit. We were just taking, last week was just an introduction, what posture should we take as followers of Jesus in this cultural moment? How are we supposed to live uh, to glorify Jesus, to make much of him, and to see the fame and deeds of God renewed in our day? And, and so we discovered we're in this battle. We recognize that the battle is not against flesh and blood, right? But there's a spiritual battle. There's this uh, way of the kingdom of God, but there's this way of the world. And what we discovered last week was that the world, when the Bible refers to the world, it's not referring to the natural world. And if you remember, we went back and we looked at the fact that God created the world and he said that it was good. That's right. And so the world is good by God's design, the way he designed it. Now we realize that it's broken and we'll start to get into that a little bit next week, but, but God's design, God's intent, God's plan, he loves the world. God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son, that God loves this planet. God loves his creation. He considers it good. We also discovered last week that when the Bible uses the word world, he's not referring to the fact that, that we're talking about people. And remember, people are created in the image of God. And so when God created humankind and Adam and Eve, he said that they weren't just good, that they were very good. And so we have this picture being painted by Scripture that, that the world, when the Bible is referring to the world, and we used this chapter out of 1 John yesterday or last week, that, that it's not referring to the natural world. It's not referring to people. And what it's referring to is actually this culture, a pattern of beliefs, a system of thought, a way of doing life. And, and remember, we said, don't let the affections of your heart be given over to the pattern of this world, to the way of, or the belief system of the world. We've got to live in a totally different way. Now, we, we, we asked ourselves this question, well, then how do we live? And we took a look at Daniel as well as the early church. And if you remember, Daniel was carried off in exile, right? But he lived in exile, but he lived in such a way that he was both participating in culture, um, but he was doing so in a redemptive way. In other words, he was bringing the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. And, and if you remember, we, we use this little phrase and we defined it this way, that what God was asking you and I as followers of Jesus, as a community of faith, as the family of God, God is asking you and I to be a creative minority. And that's not original to me, but that's a little term that then we defined this way. We said that a creative minority is a community of believers who live out God's story, the way, of, the way Jesus showed them for God's glory and the good of the culture they participate in. 
So, so the, what God's asking us to be is a community of believers, those who love Jesus, who follow Jesus. We're going to live out the story of God. We're going to do that the way Jesus showed us to do, but we're also going to do it for God's glory, and we're going to do it for the good of the culture that God's placed us in. God's made us to be salt and light, right? We're here to make a difference. No, the question that I want to take over the next four weeks is then, if we are to be that kind of community of believers that live out God's story... What is God's story? Because stories and the stories that you believe will shape how you live. A young man grows up in Cairo, Egypt, attends the University of Cairo where he studies architecture, graduates in 1990, and then moves to Hamburg, Germany to attend the University of Technology. While visiting a local mosque, he somehow is radicalized and forms a terrorist cell. Muhammad Atta ends up becoming one of the masterminds of the 9-11 attacks and flies a plane into the building because he's convinced that America is the great Satan. The stories you believe matter. There's a young woman. She grows up with a deep sense and strange sense of God's presence in her life and this desire that God would use her life in the service of God. She goes to Ireland, which was probably a really good decision on her part, she goes to Ireland to study English. Not sure why she went to Ireland to study English. You've, you've heard me talk. But anyway, she goes to Ireland to study English and be better prepared for global missionary work. One day, while she's out on a little bit of a retreat, she sees the poor and something irreparably breaks in her heart. This woman becomes Mother Teresa, as we know her. And she goes on to become one of the most significant figures in history, caring for the poor. The stories that we believe really matter. And so the question that I want to ask you this morning is, which story are you believing? There's a quote that goes this way, that narrative is, the, is culture's currency, and he who tells the best story wins. Now, another word for story could be this word worldview. And, and worldview, how many have heard this word, term worldview before, Right? Worldview is this thing that's beneath the surface, behind the scenes, that shapes and forms so many of our belief systems. It's a comprehensive perspective through which we interpret reality. It's, how we, it's a lens through which we see life. And so whether it's worldview or story, what we need to recognize is that those things beneath the surface and behind the scenes are the things that shape how you and I live life. The stories that you believe really matter. And so the question that over the next few weeks that I want to answer is, well, if we're supposed to be this redemptive community that's living out God's story, what is God's story? Is God's story just another story amongst a kind of a whole host of stories that the world would tell us? Is God's story just kind of an alternative to kind of a secular story, you know, where kind of secular story might be kind of the, you know, we're at the center, but maybe God's story is God's at the center? Like, what is God's story? How do we understand God's story? How do we live out God's story? And, and I think part of the challenge in the world in which we live, because the church perhaps has not done the best job over the years telling the full story of God. 
And many of us only live understanding kind of half the story. And the problem with only understanding half the story is that, that then we just become just another story, just a religious version of the kind of story that the world might tell. And so if I live a good life and I'm kind to enough people, then maybe, maybe somehow I'll end up in a good place versus a bad place. Or if I kind of have more good karma than bad karma, right? Like these are the stories that our culture tells us. And the question that I would have for us this morning is, well, what distinguishes the story of God? What distinguishes which is the Bible. Now, one of the challenges that we face is that oftentimes in our culture, and if you've maybe grown up in the church, or maybe you're new to faith, or maybe the story that you think the church is saying is, goes something like this, that I'm a sinner saved by grace, right? I'm a sinner in need of rescuing. I, I know, and all of us know, the Bible, we talked about this last week, that the Bible says that the eternity resides in our heart. In other words, all of us understand that something's not quite right. I mean, just flip through social media, just turn on the news at night, open up the newspaper if you still read newspapers, right? Not too many of you do that anymore, right? But, but if that's, it doesn't take very long to realize that we live in a world that's broken. Something's not right. And in those moments when no one else is around, when maybe it's a quiet moment with just you, and you start to just pause and reflect, oftentimes what we come, we come back to is, man, something's not right. Something's broken. Something's caused a problem. And the reality is that the story that oftentimes gets heard by the churches, or heard through the church, is that, well, you're a sinner, right, in need of a savior who could rescue you and give you a golden ticket to heaven. And if you can get to heaven, then, you know, just try your hardest, try your best, and try to get to heaven. Now, if you're one of those super Christians, right, and I know we've got a room full of super Christians right here, right? If you're one of those super Christians, what, it's not just that you get a golden ticket to heaven. What you want to do is you want to be like Oprah, right? Where you bring as many other people with you. You get a golden ticket and you get a golden ticket and you get a golden ticket, right? All you have to do is trust Jesus. And the problem with that story is that it's only half the story. And because it's only half the story, it kind of ends up being just kind of a religious version of some secular story that kind of gets told. And so what I want to do over the next few weeks is I want to unpack the story of God that's told through the Bible. I believe that the Bible isn't primarily a guidebook full of principles and promises. I believe that primarily the Bible is the story of God. And it's broken down in, I want to break it down over the next four weeks into four movements or scenes or chapters that go something like this, that, that, that the Bible is broken into creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. In other words, where did I come from? What went wrong? How can we fix it? And then what is my purpose here on planet Earth? Is it just me trying to live the best life that I can, trying to enjoy as much as I can, and then hopefully get to heaven? Or is there something more that God has in store for us? And I believe that as we go through the next four weeks and we understand the story of God, this framework that the Bible gives us, that all of a sudden we have a framework for life, that it's not just us trying to be kind, trying to be loving, trying to be the best person that we can be, but God infuses our life with purpose and meaning and strength and his own spirit to allow us to live as a redemptive community in the culture in which we live. Now, we face a challenge. Because to try to understand the story of God, we have to kind of understand where we're at in the story of God. Now, I've already told you, and you already know this, I am not a big movie critic guy, right? I mean, I consider Mighty Ducks a classic, 
right? So you're not thinking much of my movie skills right now. I get that. I understand. But one of the types of movies I love, and I'm hoping to go see 007 here really soon, right? Um, but I love epic movies with great storylines, you know the kind of, you know, you've got your bucket of popcorn, for those of you that love popcorn, you got your big soda that came with wheels because there's that much soda in it, right? And you are now, you sat through the 25 minutes of annoying commercials and previews that are coming up, and you are now ready to watch the movie. And so you're sitting comfortably, the lights go down, the music comes up, and, and, and all of a sudden, on the screen, you've got the hero of the movie, and he's holding his girlfriend who's, who's bruised and bloodied, and he's got his gun, and he's shooting at bad guys, and you've got people screaming and scrambling and crying all around him, and you're sitting going, you're like immediately immersed in a movie, and you're going, what is going on with this movie? And then the very next scene, you've got the same guy walking a dog on a beach. And you're like, what is going on? with this movie. Well, that, that's a little technique in film called in media res, that's the Latin phrase. And what it means is that, that it means literally in the middle of the action. And, and, and so the movie unfolds in the middle of the action, but for you to understand that moment and what would happen after that moment, you have to go back to the start of the story. And what happens in a movie like that is that it starts with the guy on the beach walking his dog, you know, and then he kind of, you know, makes eye contact with this girl and this relationship starts, right? And you know how those movies unfold and they bring you back to that opening scene. And now when you see the opening scene the second time, it, oh, I get what's going on in the middle of the action. Well, you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, we're in the middle of the action, and sometimes it can be chaotic. Sometimes it can be confusing. I don't understand why I feel so bloodied and bruised. I don't know why they're shooting at me. I don't know why people are screaming and crying. And I don't know why all of these things are going on. Help me make sense of this whole thing. Well, this is exactly why the Bible is so important. Because it's important for us who are in the middle of the action to go back to the start of the story to understand what is it that God was intending? What is it that God was designing? What was God's original intent as he unfolds this story? In fact, it's interesting because Paul actually picks up on this and he talks about this in Romans chapter eight. If you've got your Bibles, look at this. This is what it says in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, do you see what Paul's doing there in that verse? He's saying, our present sufferings, here I am in this present moment, suffering, challenged, broken, like I'm, I'm facing stuff, the stuff that we talked about last week. But he said, that present circumstance doesn't even begin to compare to the future glory. So here we are in the present, but there's something that's coming in the future, and what's coming in the future is amazing. It's going to be as it was meant to be. But he continues on in verse 19, he says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That's you and I. And look, notice what it's saying. All of creation, not just you and I, not just people, all of creation is waiting in eager expectation. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, for the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And here's what Paul is saying. In this moment, he says, you are in the middle of the action, but there is something glorious that's in our future. 
But to understand our present suffering and future glory, we have to understand what was the past frustration that unpacked? What was something that happened in the past that set up what we're currently experiencing? And so Paul is just addressing this very thought that you and I, as 21st century believers, we're in the middle of the action, but how do we understand the origin of the story? Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go back to the start of the story. And if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Like, you can't get any more closer to the start of the story than Genesis 1.1. And this is what it says. Look what it says. It says, in the beginning, what's that word? In the beginning, God. Okay, so this is like the Bible's version of once upon a time. Okay, so are you sitting comfortably? Once upon a time, and then the fourth word is what? God. Do you notice how it wasn't us? It wasn't you. It wasn't me. It wasn't culture. It wasn't world. It wasn't the enemy. It wasn't anything. In the beginning, God. God's the one that starts the story. God's the one that initiates whatever is going to be initiated. And that's how it always is, that God is up to something. He's the one that's unfolding the plan. And it says that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I've already said that sometimes we read the Bible as a guidebook full of principles and promises, and there are some beautiful things in there. But primarily, the Bible is a story, and the central character of that story is God. God wants you, when you read the Bible, not to get to find an answer to a question, right? So the Bible's not like a magic eight ball. Anybody ever have one of those growing up? You know, you, it's one of those things you shake it and hopefully you get the right answer, right? You know, like should I call her and invite her to come to the prom? You know, oh, wrong answer, let's shake it again and see if I can get the right answer, right? Some of you are laughing, but you've done the same thing with the Bible. God, I need an answer, I need an answer, boom. Nope, don't like that one, let's look for another one. Oh, that one's good, right? And we try to get the Bible to, but the Bible is primarily a story about God. God wants you to get to know him through the story that he's telling in the Bible. And, and so he creates the heavens and the earth. Now, now what is that? Now, well, it's kind of undefined at this point, but he's setting up what he's about to unpack. Verse two, he says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And that word formless and empty literally means, in the Hebrew, it's that it was unordered and uninhabited. So you have this something created out of nothing, but it's yet to be ordered and yet to be inhabited. In fact, he reinforces that point when he says that, that darkness was over the surface of the deep. That's very cryptic, isn't it? Like, what is this? You know, it's like a sci-fi movie or something, right? But I want you to see something. In the midst of the nothingness, that was, or sorry, that was cre- or the something that was created out of nothing, that's yet to be ordered and yet to be inhabited, I want you to see something. It says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is how God functions, That even where there's no order, even when there's chaos, even when there's confusion, right? It says that the ruach, which is the breath or the wind or the presence of God, was hovering in that space. 
And that ought to be some encouragement for, for us because I know that every single one of us in this room at some point and some time, we go through moments of confusion and moments of chaos, moments when things just seem out of order. But one thing that you can be assured of, and this is why I love the Bible because it's constantly pointing us and telling us who God is. God is the one who brings order out of chaos. In the midst of your darkness, in the midst of your confusion, God is the one who's hovering and, inv and invading and over that space. But are we aware of his presence? And so what happens in the following verses, and I won't take time to read it, but we recognize that God, he, in this place that is unordered and uninhabited, that God then begins to structure or order, and this is what he does on the first three days, right? Remember he said that there was, let there be, and it always starts out this way. It says, and God said, and that should be an indication to us, who has the authority? God has the authority, God's the one that's speaking worlds into existence. God's the one that's making nothing or something out of nothing. God's the one that has a plan that he's beginning to unfold. And that ought to tell us something about who God is and how God operates. So God said, and then at the, after he's created, it says at the end of every day, it says that the, at the end that there, there was evening and morning. So God said, something got created, and then there was evening and morning. And on the first day, we see that God created light, right? And, uh, and once again, God is beginning to order time. The second day, we see that God created, um, I better, I can't remember. What did he create? Oh, the vault, right? So this vault between the waters that were above and the waters that below, the atmosphere and the waters are the seas. On the third day, he created the land, right? So what we're discovering is that, that what was unordered in the first three days begins to be ordered because that's what God does. He brings order out of chaos, now, here's what's interesting about days four, five, and six. God goes back to the, place, the spaces that he ordered, and he puts inhabitants in there. Look what happens on day four. Sun, moon, and stars in the light, right? He creates the birds of the air for the sky and the fish of the sea for the seas. And on the third day, or the sixth day, he creates living creatures. But there's a bonus creation on the sixth day, and that is humankind, and he takes dust of the earth and he forms mankind and he breathes into him. And here's what it says about mankind or humankind. It says this, so on verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And, and I want you to see something there, that there's something unique and different about humankind. There's something unique and different about you and I that we're actually created in the image of God. In that little verse, verse 27, he repeats it three times to say you're created in the image of God. In the image of God, you're created. Male and female, you're created. That there's something representative. There's something that's embodied in, in humankind. And it's this idea that we are reflecting who God is to the world around us, but we're also reflecting the glory of God back to him. And the point that I simply want us to see this morning is that, that God is the one who creates order out of chaos. God is the one who inhabits the space and places with all of these creatures that he creates, but there's one creature that he creates that's special. There's one that's breathed full of his life. There's one that's created in his image. And there are some folks in this morning, here in this room this morning, that perhaps, man, you're feeling a sense of worthlessness, a sense of, man, I'm not significant. I'm not called. I'm, what, who am I? What am I? And maybe you're going through a tough season, and you need to hear this morning that God created you in his image. 
that you are unique and you are special, not because of who you are, but because of whose you are. You're created in the image of God. He goes on and and he begins to then define purpose for these image bearers. And he says this, God blessed them and said to them, I want you to be fruitful. So he's speaking yes to Adam and Eve, but he's speaking to all humankind and saying, I want you to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And the picture that God is painting for us, for humankind, is that you and I would be those people who delight in God's presence. That we're satisfied. When Adam and Eve were created, God's original intent is that everything they could ever need or want, their deepest longings and satisfactions would be found in God and in God alone. But because they found security and because they found meaning and because they found purpose in whose they are, in the fact that they were created in God's image, God was then inviting them to partner with him to subdue or to rule or to oversee, to care for is probably a better way of saying it, all of God's creation. That God said to Adam and Eve, you're created in my image. I want you to be most satisfied in me. But as you're most satisfied in me, I want you then to also partner with me to oversee and to care for all of my creation. And this is what he says. It goes on in verse, uh, chapter two, the first three verses. He goes on and he says this. He says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now here's what's really interesting. God said, he's the one with the authority. He creates something out of nothing. He begins to order things, right? He begins to then inhabit those places that he's created And he does so because he wants us to delight in, to glorify him. But then he says, I want you to partner with me. Now, what's so interesting about the seventh day, remember I said that there were six days, and at the end of creation each day, it said this. It says that that there was evening and morning. Do you know what it doesn't say at the end of the seventh day? That it was evening and morning. Why? You see, God had created a place where he would dwell with his creation. And God's intent was that, and this is why he blessed it and called it holy, which is set apart, because God's intent was that his presence would abide with his creation forever and ever and ever and ever. Now we know that something goes wrong, and we'll talk about that next week. But the point that I want us to recognize this morning is that God designed us, everything was complete. There's actually a little Hebrew word, shalom, which we've probably heard of, and oftentimes we, we think that word means peace, and it does, you know, peace be with you, and that would be a greeting, shalom. But, but shalom actually means completeness. In other words, when God was describing all of his creation, he says it's now complete. It is as it's meant to be. My presence, my creation is complete. I'm abiding with my creation, with my people. And this is supposed to go on perpetually forever and ever and ever and ever. It's as it's meant to be. And so we recognize a couple of things from this story. And there's a lot of things that we could talk about. But I want to highlight just two really simple things as we close today that that we discover from the origin of this story. 
Remember, we're, we're in the middle of the story, and in order for us to understand how we live in this present moment, it's good for us to go back to the start of the story to understand what is God's original intent. And there's two things I want to leave you with today. It's simply this. Number one is that we are created for God's glory. You and I are created for God's glory. All the complexity and all the beauty of creation was not supposed to terminate on itself. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? There were quite a few in the first service. I was jealous. I haven't been. But I've been to some spectacular places. And for those of you who went to the Grand Canyon and you kind of had anticipated going and you drive there and you get there and you get your kind of view, scenic view spot, right? I doubt that there's any of us in the room that have been there that kind of stepped into that space and go, nah, kind of cool. I guarantee you that every single one of us in this room, that if you've been there or if you would go there, what happens is that you're awestruck by this creation, that you just can't take it all in. I oftentimes hear people say, my iPhone just doesn't do it justice. Anybody ever said that, right? You've been in a place, and I do this all the time when I go hiking, I go, man, the iPhone just doesn't do it justice. What are we saying in that moment? What we're saying and what's happening is that creation is causing us to roll up. It doesn't just terminate right there, but well, that's nice. No, 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 it rolls up and it goes, man, there must be someone, something bigger than us that created all of this. And what happens is that our hearts are opened up to someone greater than us. And in fact, I would say it this way, that creation is just a signpost pointing us to the creator. And what it does is it creates awe and wonder that results in worship and adulation and exaltation and glorification. In other words, what, we are do what we're doing as we engage with creation, we're recognizing that there's someone bigger that we're here to glorify. In fact, Paul actually says it this way in chapter 11, verse 36 of Romans. He says, from, for from him and through him and for him are all things, including all of us and all of creation. And then it ends by saying this, to him be the glory forever. And so all of us in the room, the creation that we interact with, the foods that we get to taste and delight in, all of creation wasn't for you and I, it was for his glory and as created beings, what the Lord is asking us to do is he's saying, are you going to be those that would glorify me? The Westminster Confession says it this way. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This was the origin of the story. This is the invitation of God to all of creation and all of us in this room. Will you glorify me forever? Will you delight in me? Will you find your satisfaction in me and me alone? This is the purpose of creation. In fact, what's so interesting is that the Bible over and over and over again points us to the fact that it's not about you and I. It's about the glory of God. Look at, look, and I won't spend a lot of time, but look at this slide. Look at, these are just a sampling of some of the scriptures that talk about glory, right? In Ezekiel, it says, for the sake of his name, God did not destroy Israel. God saves man for his name's sake, right? Pharaoh's heart was hardened for the glory of God. Solomon dedicated the temple for the glory of God. Israel became great and powerful among the nations, making his name great, right? God didn't destroy Israel. Then God did destroy Israel, all because of glory. John, 17, or John 12, it says the cross of Christ is about the glory of God. In fact, the last conversation, the last prayer of Jesus before he goes to the cross in John 17, is actually a conversation between he and his father, not about you and, I, you and I and our salvation. 
It's actually about the glory of God. He says, God, I've glorified you, Father. Now glorify me as I go to the cross. And what's at stake at the cross wasn't our salvation. That's a byproduct of the cross. What was at stake at the cross and what we see repeated throughout these scriptures is the fact that it's the glory of God that's at stake. And what God is inviting us into, and God's original plan, is that you and I, created in his image, would be those that would glorify God. That we would exhaust our lives and spend our lives glorifying God. How is it that you and I glorify God? Well, the point that we learn from, and we're going to talk about this a little bit next week, but the point that we learn from the start of the story is that every time Adam and Eve depended upon God, When Adam and Eve said, man, I just delight in walking with Jesus, spending time with Jesus. Every time they put their trust in God, they depended upon him. They didn't rely upon themselves. They were glorifying God. Now, as we'll discover next week in the next part of the story, there's this earth-shattering moment when they choose not to depend upon God, but to depend upon themselves. How do you and I glorify God? Every time we make a choice to trust God. Every time we make a decision to depend upon him, not to depend upon ourselves. Every time we choose to honor his word above culture or above our own opinion, above our own perspective, we are choosing in those moments to glorify God. And this is what God's called us to. The second thought that I just want to leave you with really quickly is simply this. Not only are you and I created to glorify God. Now think about how that that changes the trajectory of our lives and how we order our lives and live out our lives here on planet Earth in the 21st century. I'm living for the glory of God. I'm not living for myself. I'm living to honor him and to make much of him and for his name to be made great. And I'm doing that by choosing to not follow my own will. Remember what Jesus said on the cross, not my will, but your will be done. And in the same way, every day we wake up, we say, Lord, I'm going to pick up my cross today. I'm going to deny myself. I'm living for your glory and how I raise my kids, how I treat my spouse, how I work, how I interact with my coworkers, classmates, how I use my money, my time, my talent. Lord, in all of these ways, I want to glorify you. But the second thing is this, is that not only are we called to glor- or created to glorify God, we are partners with God carrying on the good work he started. See, when you go back to the start of the story, he said, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. As you depend on me, delight in me, find your satisfaction in me, I want you then to step in and partner with me to care for this planet, to care for one another, to care for those who are image bearers and created in my image. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are God's handiwork. He's the one that created us. And he says this, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. How many of you know God has good works? He's already got planned, and he wants you to partner with him in those spaces and places to show up, excuse me, to represent God in those moments. How many of you know God has good works planned for you and I as a family 
No, not works that we earn our way to God, but because we've been redeemed by Christ, because we've been called back to original intent, we now live from a different place. We live for the glory of God, and because we're living for the glory of God, we can partner with him, being his handiwork used by him to do good in the world in which we live. This is what it means to be a creative minority. And because that's the origin of the story, we now begin to understand what's, what's supposed to be happening even in the confusion with all the action going on around us. That you and I get to live as his ambassadors, his representatives, and we do so with all the little decisions that we make each and every day individually, as families, and as a church family to live for his glory. And so I want you just, as we close this morning, just to close your eyes. And I think for all of us in the room this morning, just to do some business with Jesus. There's some in the room this morning that, man, you, you, you just need to know this morning that you are created in the image of God. There's some folks in the room this morning, and man, you've been told maybe your whole life you're worth nothing. You're not valuable. You're not significant. It might have been an external voice. It might have been an internal voice. It might just be the culture in which we live. Man, I don't measure up. I look at the other person, and they just seem to be doing so much better than I'm doing. You need to hear this morning, you are created in the image of God. And the depression, the discouragement, maybe even the suicidal thoughts, they're a lie. It's a false narrative. It's fake news. It's a wrong story. The story that God wants you to hear loud and clear in your heart, in your mind, in your life this morning is that you are created in his image and that your value comes from the fact that you belong to him, that he's chased after you, pursued you because he loves you so much. And so this morning, I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands. You know if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you this morning. He just wants to take the lie and he wants the truth of the story of God to be your portion right now. That you're going to live believing a different story. That you're going to live as a child of God called to glorify him and that where you've maybe been hanging back, God's actually going to use you to make a difference in the lives of others. And so, Jesus, it's in this moment, just with great sensitivity, Lord, we just ask you to minister this morning. Lord, I ask you that those who are, Father, just dealing with depression, discouragement, Lord, those who maybe even had suicidal thoughts, those who maybe have said, I'm not valuable, I'm not significant, Lord, in this moment, I pray that the same presence that hovered over the waters and brought order and life out of chaos is the same Holy Spirit that right now just hovers over and around in and through, Father, those lives this morning. That there is freedom. That there is newness of life. There's a new story that God is calling you to live this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen.